You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so Zephaniah uh, chapter 2. Uh, for those of you that weren't here last week, I feel like this needs to be said. So if you were here last week, this is some, just some ho- hopefully helpful review. But we need to be reminded um, that Zephaniah is this, is this prophetic letter, this prophetic account that happens uh, a, a, a time in this history of the nation of Israel, right? Uh, this people that God has said, uh, you will be my people and I will be your God, right? And throughout the Old Testament, all of these books that are written before Jesus ever sets foot on the scene, throughout that, we're really being told the story of this people, We're being told the story of the people of Israel and how over and over and over again they fail to live up to the holiness, the righteous standards that God has called them to live into as his people, right, as a reflection of him. And what we talked about last week is that really that that is the story of not only the Old Testament, but really the Bible. Like if you wanted to summarize what is the Bible about, it's about this God, whether you believe he is one or not. It's about a God. It's about this God that desires to have for himself a people. And it's a people that he displays his glory to and then intends to reveal his glory through to the rest of the world, right? That's what's going on in the Bible, okay? And the people of Israel, again, throughout the Old Testament, fail to live up to that, to be that kind of people. God has revealed himself to them time and time again, whether it was Adam and Eve in creation, whether it was to Noah in the flood, whether it was to Abraham um, in in giving him a family, uh, whether it was uh, Moses and his people being delivered from Egypt, right? Over and over and over again, he's revealed himself to them, and yet his glory is not being revealed through them. They worship other gods. They fall into all kinds of religious and cultural syncretism, meaning they become like the people that they live around rather than being this distinct, set-apart people of God. And so that is, those are the people that Zephaniah is speaking to, um, especially in chapter 1. But there's a bit of a turn in chapter 2, right? In chapter 1, it's made very clear for us that, that being the people of God is not easy, that it's a high calling, that, that Israel falls short of all the time. And what we recognized last week is that we, as God's people now, the church, right, it's, it's the same for us, right? We read Romans three twenty three, and it's not about somebody else, it's about us, right? That all have fallen short, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and His righteousness. So there's this high calling as the people of God to live into that is very difficult. But in chapter 2, we're shown that there's hope. There's hope for those who are humble. There's hope for those of us who submit ourselves to the ways of the Lord, right? That was those first three verses that we read last week. And we believe ultimately that that's, that's the call in Lent, is those first three chapters of or three, first three verses of chapter 2, to gather together as God's people before the judgment, before the decree takes effect, and to seek the Lord, all of us together, to humble ourselves, to do His just commands, to seek righteousness, humility, in the hopes that we might be 
hidden, that we might be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And we talk about how in Jesus that, that hiding work has happened for us. We talked about how in Galatians 3, we're told that if we've been baptized, then we've been baptized into Christ, like that we've been so united with Jesus that His life is our life, that we have, in fact, put Him on like a cloak or a robe. We've been hidden. So in the same way that God hides Adam and Eve's nakedness after their sin, Jesus, in His work on the cross, clothes us and hides our sinful nakedness in His own righteousness. And so... While the Lenten season is difficult in that we get introspective and we acknowledge all of the ways that we're still broken and we ask God, like almost sadistically, we ask God to reveal more, to show us the areas that we might not even see yet. Even though there's sin and brokenness and temptation yet to be uncovered, we know, we know that if we do these things and we walk into this with humility, the faithful God, the hiding God, will hide us in Christ. And with that knowledge, let's jump in to verse 4, and really just through verse 6. It says this, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. So there's a turn that happens here, right? The first three verses of chapter 2 and really the majority, the vast majority of chapter 1 are all about God's people. They're all about Israel. He tells us that judgment will begin in Jerusalem and Judah. So God's saying to His people, look, I'm going to take care of you first. But in, in this verse here, in verse 5, He turns His eyes to the nations that surround His people. And He's telling them the same thing. He's saying, look, judgment is coming for you too. In the same ways that I will lay waste to those who do not follow me among my people, I will lay waste to those who are just not my people. And that's ultimately what the remainder of chapter 2 um, is prophesying through Zephaniah. Although judgment will come to God's people, it will also come to the people around them. Now, some of us after last week are like, okay, this is the part that I like, right? We like the idea of somebody else getting their due, right? We like the idea of justice coming upon someone else. We like when the criminal gets caught, right? We like when justice is served. Now, when we're on the other side of it, it's a little bit more difficult, right? There's always an extenuating circumstance. There's always some detail that you're not fully aware of that 
uh, doesn't allow you to fully comprehend why I am the way I am. And so God turns his eyes outward, and I want for a moment, although we're going to talk about people that are outside of the church, and, and although we're going to talk in large part about what is coming upon the world on the day of the Lord's anger, we, we need to in some ways try to quiet down that inner fourth grader. Some of us are like, I didn't know I had an inner fourth grader. You do. Um, well, or maybe it's just me. But that inner fourth grader that like desperately wants other people to be exposed and punished too, right? Like, I don't know about you, but it was, it was so satisfying. Whenever I was acting like a doofus in class, and I would get caught, and my teacher would call me out, and I would, like, I'd be like, but what about that kid, right? And that kid would be sort of snickering and think, like, thinks he's gotten away with it, and then all of a sudden the teacher would turn her ire upon him, right? And that moment, like, that moment for me was was water in a dry desert, right? It was, it was so satisfying. It was just like, it's not just me, right? You're going to get yours too. And I think, again, we all have that in us. We talked about last week how in that same kind of uh, thinking or in that same kind of mode that we get into, the tendency is to look at others and evaluate their stuff and say, well, that's heavier than mine, or that's more than mine, or that's worse than mine, right? On the same way, we can be tempted overly to rejoice in the terrible that is coming. The reality is that um, if, if we're Christians in the room this morning, then that is not the Christian posture. Like, if anybody had a right to feel that feeling, don't you think it would be Jesus? Right? If, if we believe that the Bible is true, then we believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, right? So he never, he never crossed the line. Like, the, he never had an extenuating circumstance. He never had a, a weak moment. He never, well, he had plenty of weak moments, but he never gave himself over to sin in those moments, right? And so here's this guy that's, that's really and truly earned it, the only one that's ever lived that's really and truly earned it, earned the favor of God, earned the blessing of God, earned right the, the, uh, the pleasure of God, which is what, what God tells him when he's baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, right? And yet when people are mocking and beating and scourging and nailing him to a cross, instead of saying, yeah, you're going to get yours, just wait. He says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they do. And so the, the Christian posture in all of this, even as we talk about how the Lord is going to judge the world, like that there are ways that our culture is thinking and living and breathing right now that are their destruction, their doom. Our posture is not to be one that looks forward to that. It is not to look at these people who are living differently than us and, and in some ways may even take out their differences upon us and go, just wait. The Christian posture is that of a beggar who has found an unlimited supply of bread. Right? He doesn't hoard it. 
because the supply is unlimited, so it doesn't matter, right? There's, he's found an unlimited supply of bread, so what does he do? He goes and tells the other beggars where the bread is. The Christian posture is to recognize unrighteousness in others, whether they're in the church, Christians, or outside of the church, not Christians. Our posture is to recognize that and to respond with, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Come, hear his bread. And so to borrow and perhaps modify a phrase from the Mandalorian, uh, weakness is the way. Weakness is the way. Truly, and that's what we're going to, to find as we continue reading. Um, weakness is the way um, for the people of God. And, and that's why they're in the position that they're in, right? This is why the nations are going to be judged. Ultimately, let's keep reading. Um, in verse 7, it says this, The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. So there will be a remnant of God's people on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at the evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. God will restore us, brothers and sisters. Even, even in our brokenness. Verse 8, I've heard the taunts of Moab. And the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. That's re referencing a story that's further back in Israel's history, right? These two cities filled with sin and iniquity that God literally burns to the ground. A land possessed by nettles and salt pits pits, a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely and said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A layer for wild beasts. So here's the reality. Um, if we Christians are weak in large part because of our inability to live rightly, to live up to even the standards that we say are the right way to live, right? In all of our failing, in all of sort of the church's black eyes that we've received publicly lately, not this church specifically, but the church in America generally, right? The reality is the reality is, is that as our sin is exposed and as our, our, our beliefs about Jesus are sort of more fraught and more contested in the culture around us, we will, we will be on the receiving end of this kind of taunting. Right? As, as, American, as American culture becomes sort of less uh, influenced by what I like to call Christendom, 
sort of this cultural Christianity. We will experience more of, of just this reality, the taunting, the reviling. The one who looks at our weaknesses and sees something to be taken advantage of. You see, I think, um, I think in a lot of times, or in a lot of ways, we're tempted to believe that life, um, if you're doing it right, um, is is about winning. And because we're Christians, and because we're quote unquote doing it right. We should win, right? Like it's the good guy that should win, right? It's the good guy that should get the, the right? And that's why we always have these questions in our minds of, well, why do good things happen? To, or why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Right? We have sort of this karmic understanding of the world around us. Well, if I do good, then I get good. If I do bad, then I get bad. But I think the... The reality that we need to come to grips with as the people of Jesus is that more often than not, in the world as it is right now, to be clear, more often than not, in the world as it is right now, Christians don't win. You could almost say it this way, right? You've heard the phrase, nice guys always finish last. In some ways, brothers and sisters, Christians always finish last. We are weak. We are unimpressive. In large part because we've been called to be that. Like we've been called as individuals and as a collective to put ourselves last. Right? To judge ourselves before we judge other people to serve others, to be filled with this sense of humility and meekness, right? So we're not guys or girls that are walking around sort of with chest puffed out and like, okay, like take a good look, you know? There's this inherent sense of sort of a bent spine and weak knees and frail arms and And the reality is that um, if we truly introspect this during the season of Lent, if we look at ourselves and we choose the way of Jesus, right? We find all these ways that we're not walking in the way of Jesus and we choose the way of Jesus in them. If we do that, then we will be choosing a way that is largely ridiculous to the world. Like it just doesn't make sense. And it will be called any number of things. It'll be called outdated, it'll be called antiquated, absurd, foolish, reductive, fundamentalist, regressive, right? Take your pick. But brothers and sisters, what we're being shown here is that for this remnant, for the people that remain, that are humble, that seek God's righteousness, that, that we're, we're being shown that that weakness is the way. And so, if we're never in any way mocked or derided for following Jesus, then there's only really two possibilities. Now, I'm going to say that again. If we're never 
in any way mocked or derided for following Jesus, then there are only two possibilities. They're both bad. I think one's probably worse than the other. But here's the first one. The first possibility is this. We've so isolated ourselves from the outside world that we don't engage anyone who doesn't already think like us. We're siloed ideologically, right? And I mean, I think ultimately that's sort of a cancer that's growing in our culture generally, but that can't be, that can't be true for us because we've been called as Christians to live among the people that, that God is calling out of the world, right? So here's the reality. In your life, if you're a Christian, Acts 17, 26 and 27 says that you've been placed in a particular, not just like time, like he has a beginning date and an end date for your life, but that he's placed borders and boundaries in your life. So you live in Houston right now, um, not just because you got a job here uh, or because it's a good stepping stone before you move to wherever other dream scenario you want to live in, right? But that God has placed you here like right now, I don't know about tomorrow, but right here and right now that some might seek him and, so, and that some might find him. And guess what? Like, they're, they're not going to seek him and find him if we're hiding away in our homes or in our little, not only, not only real physical fortresses in our homes, but in real metaphorical, ideological fortresses either. That's possibility number one. If we've never been mocked, if we've never been derided, if we've never been sort of seen as foolish, then it could just be that we're not around people who think that what we think is foolish. That's bad enough, but there's also this second option. And I'd argue that this one's more dangerous. The second option or the second possibility is this. We've so accommodated the world's thinking that we've squeezed Jesus into an acceptable postmodern 21st century box that hides the gospel he came proclaiming which is ultimately a gospel that does tell you and I that we don't have anything of value to bring. It does tell us that we're broken. It does tell us that there are ways to live in the world today that are unacceptable to God and do not reconcile with life as he's created it. And our response to that, if we're Christians, is, is, is not to... Again, to tr- sort of to try to find a way, like there's an extenuating circumstance. It is to, as Zephaniah calls us, it is to seek righteousness. It is to seek humility. It is to lay low before the Lord and his word and accept it for what it is, true. Irrespective of the circumstances, irrespective of the response that you might get. And so here's the, the reality, I think. It, if we focused last week on the fact that Lent is difficult in part because it strains, there's a big strain and, a, and, and, and anxiety that surrounds ourselves, like who we are, right? Because we recognize that we're broken and we recognize all the difficulty and the distress that's sort of wrapped up in there and the trauma that we've experienced and the trauma that we've perpetuated and all of that stuff that's like just sort of boiling underneath the surface most of the time that we don't acknowledge. If Lent is hard for that reason, it's also hard for this reason, which is that if we really choose the way of Jesus, if we stare into that abyss and we look at all that's broken in us and we say, Jesus, you're the answer to that. Jesus, you can fix that. Jesus, you can make that right. Jesus, you can reconcile and redeem that. If we do that, then it's going to call us into some uncomfortable spaces socially. 
because we're going to start living differently. We're going to start treating people differently. We're going to start valuing things differently. We're going to start thinking about our lives and our finances and our relationships and our sex lives and our dating and everything else differently. By necessity. Because that's what happens when we come into contact with this holy God. He hides us in his righteousness. And so this gospel of Jesus is, yes, filled with radical grace, but it produces radical change and a radical new norm by which we live. Make no mistake. And it will, again, by necessity, put us at odds with the culture. So we cannot say, Jesus, I give you my life without saying also, Jesus, I give you my reputation. And whether it is plastered on the front of a newspaper tomorrow because of its regressive or fundamentalist or reductive views of whatever it might, whatever criticism it might bear. Lord, my reputation is yours to have even if it means it's, quote-unquote, ruined. But here's what's beautiful, I think, about Zephaniah 2. In the same ways that there is a lot of difficulty in chapter 1, and, and yet there's sort of a, a release. There's, there's, again, there's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of things we have to, to assess about ourselves and, and think through and, and, and remind ourselves of and be, be willing to ask the question, is that a cost I want to pay to follow Jesus, right? Uh, all, in all of that difficulty, there's a gospel release, and it's just so, so good. And that is this. Look, if, if weakness is the way, and forgive this, I know this is lame, but it helps me memorize it, okay? If weakness is the way, there will be taunting today, but there's glory tomorrow. Let me explain to you what I mean. I mean, there's multiple times throughout these sets of verses where we're told that there's this remnant and that God is going to give them the places and spaces that were once occupied by their oppressors. That these great cities that thought they were great, that thought they had it all together, that thought that they, they had figured it out, that they had sort of released themselves from every fundamentalism, from every regressive view. They've, they've progressed into this new and metropolitan, cosmopolitan future that is, that is uh, utopian in some way. God says of that city, woe to that exultant city that lived securely and said in her heart, I am and there's no one else. She's become a desolation. And he says that it's that land, it's those cities that have been leveled, it's on that city that God will build a new home for his people. And I think maybe it might be easiest if we just turn to a different portion of scripture to understand what it is that's taking place or that God is promising in all of this. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If it's an app, pull it up, that's fine. I just want your eyes to meet these words more than my face for a few minutes. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. And this is, in large part, the journey of Lent, the journey of Christian life, and, and the journey of the last two weeks in Zephaniah, all wrapped up into a little sort of short portion of this letter written to the Hebrews. It says this, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers... 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? Not by our own works, but by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, we can draw near to God, right? We talked about that last week, that in, even though we're going to spend time focusing in on what's broken about us, we can draw near in full assurance of faith, not because we're great, but because Jesus' blood is satisfying. Jesus' blood has made right everything that we've done wrong. Keep reading. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, that should be a connecting word, the day drawing near. Right? There's a real sense in which Israel experiences God's judgment at the hands of the Babylonians in Zephaniah's time. But it's all alluding to a greater day that the author of this letter is referencing. The day of the Lord. The final day of the Lord. And so he says, listen, you can draw near to God and you can encourage one another to follow him together. Don't neglect that. You need that. You need this body, these people to walk with you in it. And then it says this. This is the hard part. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? What's he saying? He's saying, listen, according to Moses' law, like people got it bad, right? They were judged harshly by that. How much more do you think vengeance will be if we trample underfoot the very embodiment of the law of Moses? This son of God who not only came to show us the way, but came to die so that we might be ushered into the way. Terrifying words, frankly. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partnered with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will not delay. He will come. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, verse 39, 
We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Listen, brothers and sisters. Lent is difficult as we introspect and look at ourselves. It's all the more difficult in that we realize that it's going to affect us socially. It's going to take us into places and spaces where we look and act and think and speak differently from the world around us. And the call for us is to persevere with confidence. Knowing that because we are Christ, because we've been hidden on the day of judgment, we will possess a lamb that is free from sin, free from brokenness. We will enter into a truly better possession. There is a better possession than your reputation. There's a better possession than your sex life. There's a better possession than your bank account. There's a better possession than your work or your home or the place that you live in. There's a better possession than all of those things. And we've been promised that we'll receive it if we're in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning again. Just grateful um, to be your people called by your name. It is your grace and your kindness that has done that work in us. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who not only boldly enter into our own sin, knowing that your grace covers it all, Lord, that if there is hunger, um, then you fill it. If there's thirst, Lord, then you alleviate it in your broken body and your shed blood. And Lord, we enter in with that similar confidence into the world around us, knowing, God, that at the end of this world, when the lights dim and go out, there is a greater possession. There's a greater possession. And the good news is, God, that we don't have to, we don't have to work to earn it. We don't have to try to be something we're not. All we have to do is bring all of ourselves to your feet and ask you to make us whole. Ask you to make us whole and to make us holy and according to the work of Jesus, which is whole and holy, you will make us whole and holy. And so Lord, just make us a people who boldly enter into those things. Make us so keenly aware of your grace and kindness to us in Jesus that no other action would make sense. No other action would make sense but to run to you in our brokenness and to trust you for our future glory. And Lord, if there are those among us who don't yet know that peace, who don't yet know that security that comes from knowing that even in the midst of everything that is unsure and fractured and fragmented in our minds and in the world, we have a Savior and a sure inheritance that no moth can destroy and no thief can steal. Lord, would you give them that this morning? Would they see and meet and know the real Jesus who 
loves them in their brokenness and yet does not intend to leave them broken. Would you give them boldness and courage to follow him, not only today, but in all of the days that come, so long as we draw breath. Be with us, we pray. According to your love, according to the work of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, we pray all of this. Amen.